0: Okay, good morning. Well with several hurricanes and I'm sure many other challenges behind us, it's good to be back with you again sharing this wonderful study of Isaiah. Our passage this morning co- covers no- Isaiah 9, 8 to twelve six. So let's see what we can unpack from the Lord during the next 45 minutes of this talk. <laughs> It's not that long, just kidding. (laughs) Just want to stir everybody up. (laughs) In the first question forwarded to you, I asked that you review the map found on page 360 of your study guide. So would you please open to that page now? I suggested that you apply the names of dog, cat, bird, and worm to the principal players in this historical drama as another simplified way of illustrating the political backdrop for Isaiah's preaching. If it doesn't work for you, don't worry, (laughs) but this is what I suggested. It worked for me over 40 years ago, so I still remembered it. Beginning northernmost on the map with the large empire of Assyria, write or think of the word dog, and then move southwest to the smaller kingdom of Syria, Syria, think cat, then move down to the ten tribes of Israel, sometimes called Ephraim, with its capital in Samaria, which is smaller in size and strength than Syria, think bird, and finally move south to the tiny kingdom of Judah with its capital Jerusalem and think worm. And I've certainly not met anything derogatory by these words, only that they are creatures with which we are familiar and we know how they interact with one another. And we also know that it is often the same way we humans interact, especially on the international scene. If one country believes another to have something it wants or needs, history quickly becomes the present. Anyway, in this case, Assyria the dog was after Syria the cat, who was after Israel the bird, who was after Judah the worm. (laughs) And little Judah under King Ahaz was scared stiff, as Janice reminded us last time. And as often is the case, it was thought the best way out of the problem was to try and make friends with the top dog, who would be able to take out both the cat and the bird, thereby ending the menace from those two. The only problem was that Judah was forgetting that once the other two were out of the way, the dog could easily go for the worm. And it's not so much that the dog wanted the worm. It would just be an appetizer along the way, but it was in the direct path to what Assyria really did very much want, and that was Egypt, another dog. So Judah, rather than putting her trust in God to protect her, as God strongly encouraged her to do through Isaiah, chose to put her trust instead in the reputation of the might of Assyria. Against this background, the Lord, through Isaiah, says three things to little Judah. And they all pertain to God's anger. They ask the questions, why is God angry? And what is God going to do about that, which has made him angry? That is, which instruments will he use to put them right? And how far is he going to go to do that? How long will his wrath remain? So let's look first at God's anger. On the sheet that was forwarded, I ask us to think about that. You know, you can tell a great deal about a person's character by what makes him angry. For instance, is it because of something happening to him or to someone else? Probably the biggest thing that makes God angry is pride. Chapter nine, verses eight to 10 reads, the Lord has sent a message against Jacob, it will fall on Israel. All the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. The pride of Israel was in their property Every time the Lord chastened them through other little nations and took things away, Israel popped back up again and was even more arrogant and with proud ambitions. When God had things removed, they never stopped to ask why he allowed this to happen or what did God want them to learn from it. Verse 13 reads, but the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. Scripture tells us that all hardship can be a teaching moment, even if we have not brought it on ourselves. Just look at Job, for instance. But it only can be if we are willing to seek and discern God's wisdom in it. And that is not always easy, of course. Another thing Isaiah says that makes God angry is when his people (laughs) live as if he doesn't exist. Chapter nine, verses 15 to 17 reveal that not even the elders of the community sought the Lord or spoke the truth. They were aligned with false prophets who told the people lies. Nor did the widows and orphans seek God, a group God always sought to protect and who should certainly have had some sense of need of him. Verse 17b reads, everyone everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks vileness. So what can we learn from this? If our leaders mislead and we follow, there will certainly be disorder. We believers do know God exists, and Israel knew that too. Their whole history was tied up in that knowledge. But they did not see fit to acknowledge God with their lives. And we come to church each Sunday to worship and to bless God, hopefully more concerned with what he gets out of it than what we do. But it's very important for us to carry that knowledge of our God and Savior into our work week to seek the Lord for his will in our life, to ask him for discernment so that we may not be unduly influenced by all that goes on around us. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us with that. Third thing Isaiah says that makes God angry is wickedness, and here it's in the form of selfishness. Wanting what you haven't got, it always leads to strife, to war. Here, verses 20 and 21. On the right they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left they will eat, but not be satisfied. Manasseh will feed on Ephraim and Ephraim on Manasseh. Together they will turn against Judah So they're always fighting, each wanting something the other one has, and every war in history starts that way. James writes in 316, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. A fourth thing Isaiah says that makes God angry is withholding justice. Verses one and two of chapter 10 reads, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. So here's a little tidbit I learned. A man, a statesman, lawmaker, and poet named Solon, S-O-L-O-N, was actually writing out the laws for Athens at just about the same time that Isaiah was prophesying to Israel and Judah. And this is what he wrote as his first principle. Justice can only be achieved if those people who are not directly affected by a wrong are just as indignant about it as those who are personally hurt. So in other words, you can only have justice when you have righteous indignation. So now we come to the question of what is God going to do about all this? Isaiah tells us God is going to allow powerful nations to invade and conquer proud Israel and Judah. First, Israel will be be taken by Assyria, then Judah will suffer Assyrian invasion right up to the city gates of Jerusalem, and later on, even Jerusalem will fall to Babylon. For their foolishness and apostasy, the people of God will lose their freedom. And the next question is for how long? Let's look at the repetition at the end of verses uh, in chapter nine of 12, 17, 21, and chapter 4, because they all say the same thing. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. So, humanly speaking, this was going to go on for a long while. As we've already seen, Judah was afraid of Israel and Syria and they both were afraid of Assyria. But initially, Assyria was so far away, Judah wasn't really afraid of that empire and the danger that it posed. And we are sometimes prone to the same thing. It's often the immediate threat that captures all our attention. Judah was actually glad when Assyria captured Syria and Israel for they had made an alliance against her. But she was very shocked when Assyria marched right over the other two and approached her gates on its way to Egypt. I think you'll find most of ancient history has been the struggle between these two empires, between the Nile River and the Tigris and Euphrates Rivers. Assyria was a proud and mighty empire. Here's a comment I found online. Assyrians were a violent group of people who conquered much of Mesopotamia in their time. They took much of their ideas for art and architecture from their very successful predecessors, the Sumerians. They took what the Sumerians created and made it bigger, creating massive palaces detailed carvings, and huge ziggurats. But with all that, the truly mighty one is Yahweh. And Isaiah promises in 10.5 that the Assyrians would uh, would also not escape judgment. They were sent by God to wake Judah up, not to prosper themselves and they were only to go so far. So Isaiah pronounces, woe to the Assyrian, the rod of my anger, in whose hand is the club of my wrath. And verse 12, when the Lord has finished all his work against Mount Zion in Jerusalem, he will say, I will punish the king of Assyria for the willful pride of his heart and the haughty look in his eyes. And if you just look at how many times in verses 12 to 14, the words I and my are used, you'll see what he was talking about. Assyrian army leaders like Tiglath-Pileser and Sennacherib were megalomaniacs, as all are who seek to create a master race and conquer the world. The Lord reminds all such persons in verse 15 that the ax does not swing itself. God is the wielder of the axe and is in complete control. In the rest of chapter 10, Isaiah writes of the pending judgment on these plunderers, while at the same time, he introduces God's proclamation of a surviving remnant from his chosen people. And history acknowledges both of these outcomes. Assyria, under Zennacherib, did indeed march to the very city gates of Jerusalem when Hezekiah was king. Chapters 36 and 37 offer a further narrative and I'm sure we'll look at that at some point. But all the cities listed here in the second part of chapter 10 are those along the route that fell to the Assyrians as they spread terror in their wake on their march to Jerusalem and I felt you could almost hear them. Trump, Trump, Trump. In verse 28, they enter Ayath. They pass through Migron. They store supplies at Mi'mash. Rape, pillage, loot. Trump, Trump, Trump. Verse 29, they go over the pass and say, we will camp overnight at Giba. Trump, Trump, Trump. Rama trembles. Gebeah of Saul flees. Cry out, O daughter of Galim just made me think of film clips I've seen of the Nazis on the march in World War II. Or at least it should give a sense of how frightening any invasion and occupation of one's country must be. And these could be headlines in our own day in various parts of the world. So finally, when the Assyrian warriors do arrive at Jerusalem's city gates, the quaking people inside the city go to bed, if they do at all, with images of so many Assyrians encircling their city that it looked to them as if a forest had sprouted up over the bare hills of Judea. And Isaiah was actually preaching inside the city at that very time, telling King Hezekiah and the people not to worry they will be all right. That's sort of interesting to imagine. But just as Isaiah had prophesied, when the people of Jerusalem looked out again the next morning, they saw no one. No one standing, that is. Because the Assyrians were all lying down, writhing in pain. The wasting disease mentioned in chapter 10, verse 16, that the Lord sent to thousands of men ready to attack Jerusalem, brought their numbers down to only a handful. And secular history, even Assyrian history, reported a plague that struck with the result that only 10 men remained of their 185,000 strong army. And so Jerusalem was spared, at least for a time. I find that to be pretty dramatic stuff. <laughs> and what of God's chosen people? How many of them will remain? Not many, says Isaiah. Only a remnant. Just as his eldest son's name, Shear Jashub, suggested, a remnant will return. But Isaiah tells us that in verse 20 that those making up the remnant will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. And that makes all the difference. Judah escaped the Assyrians, but not the Babylonians because of disobedience. However, they and we are told that a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Wherever there is God's anger, there is also sorrow for his people and mercy. His wrath will not last forever. In chapter 11, we learn that that shoot that will come up will be the Messiah, and the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him as it did on David, which you can read about in 1 Samuel 16:13. Jesse was King David's father, and branch is a messianic title related to shoot. Compare Isaiah 4:2 about the branch to Matthew 2:23 because the Hebrew for branch is neser. And many believe that when Matthew was speaking of Jesus as a Nazarene, he was referring primarily to the word branch. Isaiah, as we've seen in this, is all about trees. And he likened Assyria to a cedar tree, which once chopped down will never grow again. Isaiah pictured the people of God, however, as a woodland chopped down but a woodland of oak trees, the deciduous trees of the Holy Land. If an oak tree is chopped down and the stump is left, it can grow a shoot, which will become a branch, which will ultimately become a tree. With Jesus as the branch, it becomes the tree of life, and we are the fruit he bears. Verses 1 through 5 of chapter 11 describe what will characterize this branch, the Messiah, whom the Spirit of the Lord will equip. He will have wisdom, understanding, counsel, and power. And especially he will have fear of the Lord, which Proverbs tells us is the beginning of knowledge. That means he will be the spiritual guide, guardian, and example of and for his people. He will judge with equity, not on how things appear or on hearsay, but he will look at the heart and judge with supernatural righteousness, verses 4 and 5. It also means he will usher, usher in a peaceful reign. Verses six to nine give us a picture of creatures reconciled with themselves and with man. Man and nature have been indissolubly joined. Sin and salvation affect both. Romans 8, 19 says, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. We know Noah took animals into the ark And on Palm Sunday, Jesus came riding into Jerusalem on the colt of an ass, one that had never been broken in. This too was a sign. Isaiah gives us a picture of paradise regained, but he also acknowledges that peace is hard won. It follows judgment, and it springs from righteousness. In verses 10 to 16, Isaiah describes the great homecoming in that day mentioned also in 1020. In that day, Israel, the true people of God, will be restored. A banner will be raised and people will gather together under one leader, the Holy One of Israel. They will rally with a voluntary and enthusiastic response. They will come from the ends of the earth, no longer bound by nationality. There will be international rejoicing, Jews and Gentiles together. Verse 16 says there will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. This will be a highway with all obstacles removed so that the road to Jerusalem is clear. So now we come to chapter 12, a song of salvation, praise, and hope. Hope because some of this still lies in our future. The song celebrates the end of estrangement, fear, and want. And there's so much in the word wells of verse 3 that like so much in Isaiah, it requires a separate study. It's about the life-giving water, the water from the rock. This was a song that Hebrews sang when they celebrated the feast of the tabernacles and celebrated the water that poured forth when God told Moses to strike the rock in Exodus 17.6. And it was at this feast that Jesus declared, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. John seven thirty seven. When we raid sing this song, we recognize that God is its true center, that God is in relation to the singer that God is known by his deeds and he is known by his name, the Holy One of Israel, and he is known as God who is always present with power. It's a song we should sing to God and to one another and to any who would hear. And why are we given this song? Because of our hope in the Lord. So I was gonna have us stand and sing say this together which we still can do but I was impressed with March's song because it was all the same thing pretty much wasn't it maybe we should just sing that one again and then in your small groups you should really read verses one to six of chapter 12 together because it is something we want to corporately do and I mean I was going to say our translations would be different but the Voice would come across to the Lord the same. I mean, either the same thing. But I kind of think it would be nice if we could. I'm going to step from the microphone because I can't carry a tune. So thank you. Let's do that. Would you like to
1: stand?